So this evening, I like to look at contact because I think this is uh, something we can more easily notice when we are on retreat, the moment of contact, when we come into contact with something. And especially tonight, I like to look at contact through the senses because in a way, I think that's where you have the possibility of freedom, you could say, or of choice. At the moment of contact, when we see something, when we hear something, when we eat something, when we smell something, when we feel something in the body, when we have a thought, at that moment of contact, because one second before you were not in contact with it, and then you have that contact, what do you do? Do you creatively engage or do you grasp and to me this is what is interesting that what the mindfulness what the meditation helps us to develop is that we first recognize more the moment of contact instead of generally go so fast that you have the contact and very quickly there is a feeling and then there is generally the commenting and generally more things happen very fast. And then we can generally get really lost, either in the automatism or in the story of it or in the forecasting of it or whatever it might be. And so I feel that when we are on a silent retreat especially, it's really the opportunity to really become more aware, not in a self-conscious way. You know, I must watch out for contact, or no, like in a radar-like way, I must be aware of all the contact at any given moment, which in a way is impossible, because through the senses, six senses, we really have a lot of contact at any given moment, and we might more respond to some, react to some, ignore some. But I think on a retreat especially after the spy the third day, we, see, we start to really settle down. And then we start to see more. Oh, what happened when I am in contact with something? Do I grasp? Do I creatively engage? And in a way, can I have the choice over time? What is it that's going to help me to move more from grasping to creative engagement and then the next question is, how much do I grasp? Because I think the meditation also helps us to diminish the grasping. It doesn't mean it won't be there. But I think if it is there to a much lesser degree, in a way it might be less problematic. So first I'd like to look at, in a way, the process of grasping and possibly the other side of it, which would be creative engagement. And I think, in a way, it's kind of we come into contact with something, and generally there is this process as we come in contact with a sound, with a sight, with a sensation, with a thought, that generally we identify with it. So generally there is this contact, and generally you have grasping, and in the grasping itself, there is identification. I, me, mine. And then with the grasping, there is this kind of like, with the identification, 
there is this kind of like stasis which gets created. And also at the same time, this limitation. So the grasping often brings tension because you are in a kind of a posture of grasping. But at the same time, there is this kind of limitation because in a way you kind of become stuck to what you're grasping at. And so you grasp, you hold, you identify, you generally solidify around what you're grasping at, and then generally you magnify it. And, and this is one of the main problems, in a way, I would see in terms of pain that comes with grasping. The fact that it's not just that we grasp at something, which creates a little tension, and then generally there is a bit of reduction around what we grasp at. But as we grasp at something then, because we reduce ourselves, then we magnify. It has this kind of like opposite effect than it w- w- it, we would think it would have. And so then when we grasp, I think there is, well, like, Two signals we can recognize. One is we grasp and we proliferate. So that we grasp, we identify, and then we proliferate, which means that we generally go into abstraction. We go into, it's kind of like we just build and build and build, and the thing becomes really quite big, proliferation. But let me give you an example. Let's say, you know, I arrive in this room and I am the teacher and, you know, I've never been to Gaia House, but as a teacher of meditation, I encounter different bells throughout my travel. And some sound a bit like this and some sound a bit like that and sometimes I don't even have a bell, so it's kind of, I do that... So here, I come to Gaia House for the first time, and then here I have a, I have a ball, and I have a this. And I don't know how it's going to be. Is it going to be ding? Is it going to be doom? You know, no idea. So, but I try it out. I try it out, and I do this. And I think, ooh, very nice. This is a very nice sound, very nice spell, very nice little thing, just perfect. Hmm, it would be nice to have one like that, you know. <laughs> I mean, if I had one like that, you know, I would be guaranteed such a nice sound. And then, you know, I mean, I can't really steal it. I mean, it would not <laughs> go against the precepts, but, you know, how could I get one like this? You know, I have to ask them where they got it, and I have to get one like this, but if I get one like this, and it's a little big, you know, how am I going to get it into my luggage? You know, do I need to buy a bigger luggage? You know, and, yes, I saw some really nice luggage the other day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, good, a good opportunity. Go with the bell. And... Have you seen what happened? You know, I mean, at one level, you just have the bell. I ring the bell and I hear a sound. <coughs> and I can't just stay with the sound. Hmm, that's a nice sound. It is. So 
personally, I would say creative engagement is just, ah, that's a nice bell. This is a nice sound. And I just, in a way, appreciate. I think it's very important to see that the opposite of grasping is not rejecting. He's not saying, oh, I don't care. You know, any sound is okay. But normally that's what the impression you get. doesn't matter. Any sound is fine. <laughs> but it's pleasant. It's agreeable. And I appreciate that the bell has a nice sound. But as soon as I want it for myself, then I can start to proliferate about it, how to acquire it. And then it goes into other things. And then you can sometimes start from just the little sound of a bell and you really go quite far just from the sound of the bell by grasping at it and then proliferating with it. And I think this is, in a way, a kind of a signal <coughs> that we could have and that we could notice when, for example, we sit in meditation. You know, we sit here and you, know, and you might come into contact with a sound, a sensation, whatever it is. Do I just creatively engage with whatever is happening with that contact? Or do I go into this proliferation, which goes more and more into abstraction, a lot of the time in the future, and off I go? And generally, I mean, this is one of the, what I would say happen is that actually then I am not with the sounds of the bell anymore. That's the thing, not only... You kind of proliferate, but by proliferating, you're not anymore with what is going on. So you're not with the experience anymore. You kind of jump. You can go in abstraction. You can go somewhere else. And then the other aspect, which I think is another signal, is what I call exaggeration. So it's like you come into contact with something, and either... It's fantastic, it's the greatest thing in the universe. Or it is terrible, it is awful, it is the worst thing in the universe. And the problem with doing that, I mean, when we do this, it feels exciting because really, you know, my life is really, you know, interesting because this is the greatest thing or this is the worst thing. And I think that's why possibly we enjoy it a little, kind of. We don't have a humdrum life, you know, it's really something special is happening. But the problem with the exaggeration is that, in a way, it stops us from really dealing with the situation. Because this exaggeration actually kind of, in a way, go beyond what I would call our creative potential here and now. And it kind of like becomes this huge thing. Or it becomes this terrible thing. And this is, again, what I would call a signal phrase. When you say, I cannot stand it. You know, and it kind of actually it, it brings so much tension. I cannot stand you saying this anymore. I cannot stand. I'm not saying you should not creatively engage with what the person saying. What I am saying is that if you grasp at it, then generally by exaggerating it, you're going to make it generally more complicated to deal with it because it's going to be that big instead of being this big. 
once I had the, this experience, I started this, uh, I was going to do a month long of meditation in silence with a, a bunch of teachers to try out a new meditation center. And I was really happy to do that. I was really fired up and, you know, very much in the mood, what is the most I can do and getting up early in the morning and really kind of very fired up. And the fire up lasted two days because they, by the third day I got ill with my stomach because the food was uh, problematic for me. And I could see, you know, that I could either go, this is terrible, this is awful, all I wanted so much to practice and it was so fantastic, the greatest thing in the universe this month and this, and now this terrible thing has happened and if every day I have this pain in the stomach, imagine 28 days with this pain in the stomach. I can't. <laughs> yeah, so, wait a minute. It's unpleasant, it's not very agreeable, but it's not the end of the world, you know, pain in the stomach. And as soon as I did this, then it was, I was able to creatively engage with it. And then I went into, you know, what is the middle way with this? What can I do? Then I did lots of walking, lying down, sitting, very different schedule. But I still had a great retreat. But if I had gone into the grasping, the proliferating, the ejaculation, Generating, in a way, the retreat would have stopped there instead of actually creatively engaging with it and then finding a way to deal with the situation, be careful with the food and do things which would help my stomach. So it's to see, I think, in a way, the grasping is a possibly normal response a lot of the time, but to see what it engenders, what it kind of nearly provokes, and so you know, to recognize the signal, oops, I'm proliferating here. Can I come back to what is really going on? Oops, I'm exaggerating here. Can I come back to what is going on? And then in what is going on, the creative potential can work. But in the abstraction, in the exaggeration, the creative potential cannot do anything. This is, why, this is why we can really frighten ourselves, thinking about lots of things ahead of time. And then when we're in the situation, a lot of the time we can deal with it. Because in the situation, we can. We have the potential. But in abstraction, very difficult. And also to see that this grasping and the proliferation, exaggeration worked both ways, positive and negative. The grasping is not just about wanting things, but the grasping is equally, happen equally in rejecting things. So when we push something away, we do exactly the same thing. We're going to magnify it as much as when we want something, we're going to magnify it. And so you know, we need to be very careful with that because if we reject something and then we magnify it and then it's going to be really problematic because it's going to be so much bigger than what is really going on now. How can I be 
with this. And so I wanted to do it through the senses, to look at it a little in terms of uh, being on retreat and daily life. And the first one to look at is food. So we eat, so we have uh, sense, we eat, we have uh, gustative sensation, we have taste. And what do we, we do with taste? And then you can really work on it during here, you know, breakfast, lunch, dinner. You know, what do you do? You know, every day you present it. I mean, breakfast and dinner are a bit similar. But dinner is a bit different, you know, and so you kind of see, mm, and then you taste it, and it's very interesting. You taste it. Mm. And nearly immediately, I want more. This is very, you, you barely start eating something. And if it's pleasant, I want more. And then you kind of look, you know, how can I get more? And, and in a way, to, to see that, and then you taste something, and it's really not what you thought it was. You know, I had a friend... When he was long ago, he was in Thailand, kind of begging as a monk. And then somebody put this really nice-looking kind of, you know, little nugget-like nuts. And he thought, you know, hmm, that looks good. Until he realized, he realized it was fried ants. And then he was a little, <laughs> very, from pleasant to unpleasant very fast. And how can I get rid of it? So I'm not saying you should not get rid of something which doesn't taste good, but it's interesting. What, you know, you have the contact with the food. You have the taste. It's good? Mm, it's not good. What do you do? How are you with it? Because, you see, you go from there, and from there you can proliferate. Like when I was living in England many years ago uh, in a community, and every spring, they used to be so excited because then they were going to make rhubarb pie. And I used to think, what's the problem with these people? <laughs> rhubarb is the worst thing in the world. The badness is in it, you know, reside in the rhubarb. So if badness resides in the rhubarb, then there's something bad in them for liking, you know, these bad things. And then you can, you know, it kind of goes. So you see, sometimes you don't stay with the thing itself. You kind of, you transmit it. This is what we also have to be careful, how we transmit it through the grasping. But I learned to become friend with the rhubarb. So I look at it a little, uh, I eat it time to time now. Creative engagement. But one thing which is very interesting with food is when you eat something for the first time or you eat something you've not eaten in a long time. And this happened to me. And I got caught with it again recently. Very interesting. So I was a nun for 10 years in Korea. So for 10 years I ate rice and kimchi and not much else. And then after 10 years, I went to France, and I had the opportunity to have a couscous in France, in a Moroccan restaurant in Paris, and it was fantastic. It was the most fantastic couscous in the universe. So because it was fantastic, of course, the next day I went to the same place, same time, same couscous, and it was 
okay. It was not fantastic. And recently I uh, happened to be in Paris and we were eating a little late because of some things. So I said, okay, there was a couscous. It seemed to be the easiest thing to do. So we went to eat the couscous. And even though I knew there was still a little bit, you know, is it going to be like that time? <laughs> Not at all. It was really very ordinary couscous. Then I went to myself, I thought, mm, I'll make a couscous and see, can I do it like it was that time? And it was not. <laughs> and this, to me, is very interesting because there what one is grasping, what I'm grasping at, is actually the newness of that experience at that moment. So it's not about the couscous. It's about the, the, what I would call, I'm grasping actually at the experience of contrast. For 10 years, I have not tasted this. And suddenly I taste it. And it's, for 10 years, I have not had that experience. And then suddenly I have it and it's, wow, this is nice. Not rice and kimchi again. <laughs> and it's amazing. It's really amazing. But it's amazing because it's like new and because of the contrast of not having had it. But then I cannot recreate the same experience with, some, with the same thing. I mean, I can possibly try to recreate the experience with something else. But it's not guaranteed. Because if you don't have the contrast, it won't be amazing. And to me, this is something we have to be careful at, that grasping at the contrast, grasping at the newness of the experience, and again and again trying to repeat it. And we can't. And I had a friend many, many, many years ago, she had an amazing experience in the Ganges, really amazing, at one with the universe. And then after, for the next 30 years, she tried to recreate it but she never experienced it again because she, did, she could not get the same contrast of never having been in the Ganges and now being in the Ganges at that time, at that moment. And I think we have to be a little careful in terms of meditative experiences because sometimes at the beginning, when we do meditation, we might have a certain experience and it really feels amazing. But I feel it feels amazing more because of the contrast, because of the newness. And then 10 years later, you say, why am I not having the same amazing experience? And I think then you are like me with the couscous, trying to recreate something which in a way is unrecreatable. But it doesn't mean I cannot enjoy couscous, but I cannot have that same experience. And then what is interesting is with more ordinary things. Like one of the things I like to eat is uh, blueberries, which are really hard to get in France. So whenever I'm in England, I buy lots of blueberries. I have got some here. And I enjoy them time to time. But you see, what is interesting with the blueberry, I like them, I find them pleasant if they're not sour or unripe or whatever. But I don't go, wow, you know, that's an amazing blueberry. And I think, hmm, 
it's nice, you know? But because at the beginning, I just studied and thought, hmm, it's nice. But I did not kind of grasp at it. I did not make this huge thing around it. And so actually now, I can more enjoy blueberries than couscous. <laughs> and so in a way, I think it's for us to look at that. What is it I'm grasping at? The newness, the contrast? Or can I appreciate the thing in a way as it appears, as it occurs, as I encounter it? Then you have sight. So that's something I think you can really explore a little when you go for walks or when you go around the house, when you do the walking meditation. When you have visual contact, you come in contact with something you see. And what do you do? We see it, and generally we perceive it. So sometimes it's interesting, you see something and you don't know what it is. Or sometimes you think you see something and actually you're seeing something else. Perception. Perception has a lot to do with this contact, visual contact and how we perceive it. It's very interesting. How you see something and you think it's something and then you realize something else, and then you're kind of feeling told, totally changed. It kind of just through the perception of it. That's something we can play a little to looking at, you know, if it's this feeling, I grasp that feeling, I don't. And so when we see something, when we see somebody, how can we, in a way, creatively engage with seeing that person, seeing what we see? and not go into the proliferation or the exaggeration. We're really creatively engaging with what we see. And the same with something we like. And this is something I kind of recommend to do, is when you go in a shopping place, you know, you to one of these big shopping streets, Oxford Street, or wherever you go to shop, and to look at shop windows, you know, either of, I don't know, iPhone 47, or an amazing dress, or an amazing book, or whatever it is, and you see something, and what happens? How do I kind of like think, I really need this? Or do I want it? This is interesting with visual things. Often we can see the difference between, do I need this, or do I want it? Which I think is a little connected with renunciation, you know? And to me, renunciation is very connected with grasping or creative engagement. So when you see something, what do you do? Something that you like? Mm, it would be nice to have this. Do I need it? I don't know if I need it, but I want it. It's so good. The color, it's so great. It's 200,000 apps are so amazing, you know. You, I must have it. And it, what is interesting is when we get it, it's kind of like the, 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 the exaggeration often goes very fast. It's kind of, the thing then becomes still useful, but it's kind of something has gone from that moment where, oh, I want it. And also there is when... Um, you see something you don't like. You might see something dirty, or you might see something unpleasant, or you might see something you know, you're upset about. And when I used to live in a community in England, one of the things that people used to get upset about visually 
was cups, unwashed cups. We used to spend lots of time in the community meeting about unwashed cups. You, know. <laughs> you are not mindful. You are not washing your cups. If you were compassionate, you would wash your cups. <laughs> and I used to think, you know, okay, there is these two or three cups who have not been washed immediately. I thought, well, either you see them and you don't do anything, or either you see them and you do something and it takes 30 seconds, or you grasp at it negatively and then we spend 30 minutes talking about in the community meeting. <laughs> and I thought that's so interesting, how these then really proliferated into all kind of, just because of seeing the cups. I mean, it all starts with seeing the cups. And then on top of it, you can put lots of things, you know. And, you know, and the, you don't wash the cup means you don't care. If you cared, da, 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 da. And then you can go into very, actually, painful place. And it starts with just seeing the cups. And that is an interesting... It doesn't mean, you know, you can't try to talk to people to do it, but if they really don't do it, you know, I don't know. I think, you know, it's just cups. You know, it's not... The end of the world. <laughs> but we, that's a problem with grasping, is we can easily make it the end of the world and then becoming it very painful for ourselves and others. But also with sight. Recently I had this uh, experience. We saw this uh, wonderful film, The Mill and the Cross. And it's basically a painting of Peter Bruegel, the elder, which becomes a film, and it becomes animated in real life. It's an amazing film. Stephen and I really enjoyed it. And so we were uh, in Vienna, and so we went to see the painting. So we went to the museum, and then because we were in the museum, we saw lots of other painting. And so visual contact with those painting of all these uh, Dutch painters. And by the end of the hour visit, I really felt uplifted. I really felt uplifted by the visual contact with the art, with the painting. But also with what I felt uplifted by was the creativity of the painters. The, the, the fact that these human beings at that time did that. I thought it was amazing. And it really, in a way, inspired me. And I really felt kind of this inspiration from just seeing that creativity. So in the visual contact, you can just see the thing. Or in a way, in the visual contact, if you bring vipassana to it, you can see the conditions that give rise to it. And then in seeing the conditions that give rise to it, then often there can be this in that case, really is this uplifting, which I felt again when I went to see another exhibition in Paris of Gerard Richter. And uh, I have seen exhibition of him before, but that one was really... And again, I had that feeling of uplift, of, in a way, coming in contact with something. It did not mean I wanted to own one of these things, not at all, but just to be uplifted by the creativity by the conditions that gave rise to that. 
And so in a way to see that if we grasp or if we reject, then actually we lose connection with the possibility of that, of actually seeing the thing, but seeing also the thing, how it occurs, which I'll talk more about in another evening. So we don't just see the thing as this is it, but we see the thing as it came into being. And then I think that connects us to the world in a more organic way. Then you have sound. And that, I think, is a good uh, exercise this week, it seems, because we seem to be hearing lots of sound. Generally, that's one of the problems at Gaia House. You sit in meditation, you try to listen, and there is not much. So you listen to the silence. But at the moment, action station around here, it seems, a little. So in a way, it's kind of looking. When you hear over there the tap, 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 I don't know what they're doing, but they're doing something over there, boom, boom. What do you do? Over there, when you hear the lawn mowing or something of that nature, what do you do? Do you just kind of listen to it as it arrives? Oh, I can't meditate. I mean, if only there was not this sound, then I could meditate. But it's interesting. You know, we have this sound, then you hear the tweet, tweet, tweet. This is nice. (laughs) Perception. You know, what do we do with perception? You know, how we perceive what we perceive. And also, somebody hears the tap, tap, tap and think, hmm, like drums, great, you know. And they don't like the pitch of the bird or whatever. So what do we do when we hear a sound? How do we grasp? Or do we creatively engage? And I think this is something which can also help us in daily life with words. Because I think we are very, this is something so immaterial. Words, they're so immaterial. They're just a little sonorous wave. They're not much. A word is really just, you say it, it's gone. It's really gone. It's like, you know, why are you going to grasp at it? And the thing is that we grasp. You sit in meditation, you watch the breath, and then you think, he said this. Two years ago, how dare he say this, you know? I remember, ten years ago, somebody said something on a little place somewhere in Devon. And I still remember, he said this. I'm not upset about it, but I still remember. (laughs) And it was maybe, you know, four words. And I've never met the guy again or whatever. But it's interesting how we hear something. It's like, wait a minute. And you really grasp at it. And it's kind of like there is this special place where we tuck away these words. And often the words are not about, you are the greatest person in the universe. Oh, I'm so thankful to you. Oh, really, thank you, thank you. It's kind of like, you know, somebody criticized you a little or said a little something which niggled you and you think, hmm. And to see that with the words, especially what we think are painful words, we really hold on. And in a way, by holding on, we actually cause ourselves a lot of pain. 
And to me, creative engagement in terms of what we listen to when somebody speaks to us, it's really to see what, what is it about. Is this person talking about me? Or is a person actually talking about them? And often I feel that the creative engagement is giving us a choice. Am I going to buy this or not? But that I don't necessarily have to hold on to it, to identify with it. Because we identify so quickly with what people tell us. But people tell us whatever because of their condition. Condition we might know, condition we might not know. And then it's for us to see. Can I learn something from this? If somebody tells you you made a mistake, yes, okay. I'll try not to do it again. But I don't have to kind of get caught in the loud voice or the certain words the person uses. It's okay. They said it, but I don't have to buy it. I don't have to keep it. Because this is a problem with grasping, is that then we keep it. And then it kind of, in a way, kind of uh, becomes, it's kind of like become worse and worse and worse. And it's kind of like, hmm, yes, yes, that was good, that was bad, yes, yes, okay. Oh, yes, uh, and it's kind of like macerate, you know. I mean, I think there is enough pain in the world, we don't need to add maceration of this type of thing. And to me, the creative engagement is really helping us. You know, and I think that's what we're doing with the meditation, to develop the stability and the openness so that when we hear something, we can encounter it in a different way. We're not saying, I don't want to hear it, but we're saying, okay, how can I be with this? How can I listen to this? How can I learn from this? How can I just leave it with the person and not need in a way to put it in my personal luggage? Then you have smell. And smell again, you know, lots of the time the smell are pretty neutral and then sometimes you have pleasant smell, mm, you know, nice roses, nice flowers. And then, you know, you might go to the bathroom and who knows, somebody might have done a little something. After, mm, 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 you know? But it's interesting. If it's you, it's much less worse than if it's somebody else. Interesting perception, identification. So, you know, how can we be? I mean, creative engagement doesn't mean that if something smells bad, you don't open the window and do something about it. But are we going to exaggerate it? How are we going to proliferate with it? That, I think, is a question, in a way. And then you have sensations. And we talked a little about sensations yesterday, looking a little at pain. And I think sensation, again, this is, I mean, you have the opportunity the whole week as you sit in meditation, walk in meditation. As you sit, how are you with sensation? What do you do with sensation? I mean, me, I have a little, I'm, at the moment, I'm a little faintly allergic. So my skin goes funny time to time. And so, you know, you feel something and you think, ooh, is it it? Is it going to kind of, you know? But the thing is, 
If I creatively engage, I put a little cream and I wait to see what happens. Or do I proliferate and see myself, you know, I don't know. It becomes the worst thing in the universe. So it's kind of, I think with, um, with pain, pain is already painful. But if on top of it we grasp at it or we push it away, we magnify it. And this is really, I think, the difficulty with pain. That if we grasp, we quickly magnify. And then, it's, then it becomes very difficult. How can I deal with this? And I think that's why, in a way, mindfulness is being so much used nowadays with John Kabat-Zinn's method of MBSR and many other people, like this fellow, Paul Grossman, working with uh, MS, is that, in a way, the mindfulness doesn't take the pain away. I think this is very important to see. The mindfulness is not going to stop the MS or stopping cancer or stopping whatever. It's not going to stop the pain. But the mindfulness is going to help us in two ways. First, to see, to not magnify, to not exaggerate, to not proliferate, which then will help us to more creatively engage with it as it happens. And also it will help us to do the vipassana, to do the looking deeply. And then if we look deeply, we can see that even if the pain is sometimes relatively constant, it does change. It comes, it goes. That's what one of the things during the months where I had the pain in the stomach was to see. You see, I would sit in meditation and then I would feel the pain. And then it would be gone. It would not be there. I did not feel it. And then maybe 10 minutes later, it would come a little and then it would be gone. And that's what I notice if I have pain. If you go inside the experience, actually it's not something which is stuck. It's something which generally is moving, shifting. And I think the mindfulness helps us to see that more. So that when it's not happening, oh, it's not happening right now. And then when it happens, we're not, in a way, expanding it. We're kind of trying to be with it in a way, as it happened. And of course, if need be, one can take painkiller. I don't think that because you're doing mindfulness, you should not take painkiller. I think one has to be careful not to put the opposition between mindfulness and painkiller or whatever medical drugs we might need to take. I think one has to be careful there. I mean, it might help us to reduce it. I mean, I, many years ago, I had these attacks of pains. And at the beginning, I was just taking like, you know, eight painkillers for something to happen. Until finally, I kind of, you know, decided to use mindfulness. And then it was not pleasant. But I had to just take one or two painkillers. And then it would be okay. So I could see, you know, that if I magnify, then it kind of, the whole system, that's the thing, the whole system is increasingly sensitive. If I don't magnify, there is still a little sensitivity, but not as much. And then, the last thing we come into contact with is thoughts. And maybe this is what I will uh, talk more about, because like my time has run out, so I'll stop here. But tomorrow, 
I want to look a little at thoughts, how we come into contact with thoughts, and how, again, can we creatively engage with thoughts? Because that's quite a big subject. So that's what I wanted to say. Are there any questions or comments? Yeah. Is it, uh, I mean, you use the word choice, and, and I wonder if that actually the, the point of contact is the point where the choice is made, or whether the choice is made when we decide to have a practice that will help us at the point of contact, so that having um, developed mindfulness, we have a, a different habit kicked in, so that that's not the choice point. Actually, I feel there are different choice points. Actually, there is, I think, sometimes even without doing meditation, you can make the choice. You know, you, uh, there is a, a wonderful book called Moments of Clarity, and it's about people with uh, alcohol dependency and the fellow interview different people, uh, what is the moment where you decide to, re- to go into recovery, to stop? And it's very interesting because they make a choice, but each make really a, different, a choice at a different moment in very different circumstances. So I think, yes, I mean, generally, if we do mindfulness, is in a way we made the choice to do something, to cultivate something. But then I think... In a way, when we become more mindful of the moment of contact, then the choice, in a way, depends on what I call the inner and the outer conditions. And sometimes the moment of choice is after you've gone through the whole thing. You know, you've gone kind of really upset, exaggerated and everything, and finally it passes like all things, and then you think, oh, I was doing this. And so... Personally, I feel this is a moment of seeing differently. Instead of still going on, it's all their fault, everything, you think, oh, maybe I did something. And then, you know, you might be in the middle of it and think, hmm, do I need to go on doing this in that way? So I think there are different ways to make the choice. And then sometimes, what is interesting, and I think that's when, in a way, we develop more the mindfulness, is when actually it happens And it doesn't feel like I am making the choice, but that the thing is happening by itself. But I'm not saying that it's like that all the time. But I think there is moments like this when suddenly the shift happens by itself. Instead of going into the grasping, you go into the creative engagement. And I think over time, why we do this is because of what the Buddha says uh, in one of his suttas is that in a way, something within us recognize the danger of the proliferation, the pain of the exaggeration, and say, no way, I'm not going there again. I'm going to do something else. And sometimes you just shift by yourself. And often that's what people feel when they often leave retreat, is that for a month, they kind of <laughs> have more of this moment of just instead of reacting automatically, kind of 
reacting in a more creative way. Uh, you were talking about um, going with pain and going inside the experience, how it stops or it's gone or changes. And I'm wondering about that with, you know, with body scan or sweeping attention. And sometimes I use that when the sensation is very strong. And I'm wondering, is that just another sly way of aversion, kind of? Because I know doing that will get rid of that strong sensation. And so, you know, it's kind of I'm not sure if that's skillful. Um, again, it depends what it is. It depends what's going on. But like tomorrow, I will, we'll do the body, uh, the body uh, awareness. Mm. Again, it depends what it is. You know, like um, if you have a threatening condition and you don't go to the doctor and you just do body scanning to deal with it, that I would not recommend. You know, that I would not recommend. I think in a way we need to, to care for ourselves. And that I, w- I don't think is creative equanimity. Um, but if you are, you know, sitting in meditation, and it's very interesting to see how, I mean, we can grasp. The grasping can happen without us being so conscious of it. I think with pain, especially with pain, because we have a, a kind of nearly, I'll talk more about feeling tone in two days, and we have a very immediate response to it unpleasant and we kind of in a way you could nearly say you grasp more quickly at unpleasant than pleasant and because of that then there is quickly this I would say exaggeration this kind of little intensification and so I think with the body scanning what we're doing is actually just bring it back to its normal uh, expression and then with that normal expression you can decide, do I just stay with it? Do I go and take a painkiller? Do I go to the doctor? Instead of being in the... Because recently, I mean, a few years ago, I had an attack of pain. You know, I don't know why. Suddenly, it was so painful. I was driving, I could barely drive. My whole body was so, so, so painful. Really, I had the feeling that the pain was outside of myself. It was so painful. I had the feeling the pain was there. And then I came home and I was kind of starting to feel, am I going, you know, to die tomorrow or some kind of, you know, proliferation, exaggeration. And then creative engagement kicks in. And I did a sort of body scanning. I said, wait a minute. It feels like the pain is there. But where is it actually? So then I go to the head. And actually, I had no pain in the head. Neck, no pain. Shoulders, no pain. Arms, no pain. Upper torso, no pain. And then I could see, oh, yeah. It's, you know, where I often I have pain. And then it's kind of like that pain there disappeared. And there was just a pain here. So to me, I don't think it is a repressing. I think it's just a de-intensifying. And then it's more possible to see what's going on instead of looking at what I would call the magnification of it. Then you can see, oh, is it just a little niggle or is it something I really have to address and do something about it? Yes? I'm just thinking that if people can't get a 
they're not speaking of this cosmic novelty. Um, the cosmic novelty and addiction, the connection to, to grasp of novelty, the, mm -hmm. the trying to continue novelty, mm -hmm. and the notion of addiction in that sense. Oh, right, yeah, 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 yeah. Because, um, yes, yeah, sometimes, you know, if like you, uh, there is a wonderful program dealing with um, people in prison with yoga and meditation. And there was this wonderful thing from this fellow who got into trouble because he was a drug addict and then he got into prison. But what he was addicted to actually was very strong experiences. And so he really needed a lot of strong experiences. But after doing the yoga and mindfulness in prison, he found that maybe the best thing was to do surfing. So he went to live in Australia. <laughs> and then he would have his kind of, you know, like kind of uh, adrenaline going without having to do something which was not so good for him or uh, was not very legal. So I think sometimes, yes, sometimes you're actually addicted to the newness, which then means that you constantly have to have new, 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 and that generally it's hard to kind of keep. And that's what generally happens with uh, addiction, that you need more and more and more to have the same effect. And after a while, you actually don't have the effect, but you need the drug in order not to feel so awful. So then it kind of gets really complicated. You know, I think this is, a, uh, possibly I think also in this modern life, this newness, I think, is kind of uh, what drives a lot of it. But uh, ecologically, it might be also a little problematic. And maybe we have uh, to stop here for the walking meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.